All right, so as we get into our third series, uh, our third part of the series, we talked about integrity. Uh, if you'll remember on week one, if you missed some of these, you can go back on the website and look at them. Uh, last week was honesty. And so inherently, we talked about honesty with integrity. And so when you have integrity, you display honesty. And so tonight, we're going to go into the third uh, part of this, which we'll get to, uh, you know, a little bit later on. So as we begin to talk about this tonight... And I began to think about what we're discussing here in this traits series. You see, one of the most basic human desires is to be seen and to be known. Everyone would agree with that. Everybody wants to be seen and everybody wants to be known. That's one of the reasons, uh, handouts are there in the middle. Uh, That's one of the reasons that uh, small groups are so effective in building community. Because if you miss church and you don't sit on this side, which is the side that I normally sit on, I'm probably not going to notice it. And if you go to the second service, well, I'm out, right? Because I I normally don't go to the second service because Brian does. So typically, you're you're not missed, right? You, You only see the back of the head of the person that's in front of you. But when you get in a circle, that changes things. When you look at people face to face and there's 5, 10, 15 of you in the room, well, guess what? People began to know you better and they began to understand things about you and they learn things that they like about you and they learn things they don't like about you. But they notice when you're not there. And so every one of us has this desire. I mean, in the years that I've been here, there's even there's been times where people have said, well, I don't go to that church anymore. Why not? Well, you know, something happened in my family and it wasn't acknowledged right? And, and, you know, that was a small group dropped ball that, you know, it, it wasn't identified and somebody didn't step in and, and say, hey, you know, we, we see you. We understand what's going on. We all desire that. We all want that for ourselves. And it's, it's part of our nature to want that, to be seen and to be known. You see, uh, we are who we are. We want people to recognize who we are. We want people to see the things that we've accomplished, and we want those things to be recognized and in some ways affirmed. Now, different personality types are going to relate to this in different ways, but uh, essentially all of us desire that, that in some way the accomplishments that we have accomplished would be recognized. And society has built a culture around that. In everything that we do, there's recognition. You graduate from kindergarten, you get recognized. Although you didn't really accomplish anything, you get recognized. You graduate from middle school, you graduate from high school, you graduate from college, you get a promotion. So many days on the job without an accident. This is our manager of the year. This is our employee of the month, right? Everything is about recognition. And society has built the culture around all of us being recognized. It has been the desire of humanity since the inception of time. And so if you go back and you read Genesis and you think about exactly what's happening in Genesis, almost immediately what we see is that there are two brothers that are in conflict. There's Cain and Abel. And you read the conversation uh, that God had with Cain and you read the conversation that God had with Abel and seemingly Abel gets more credit for what his giftedness is than Cain does. And so what does Cain do? He kills Abel. 
And so this credit or this recognition has been a battle from the very beginning. Even as I began to think about this, I thought about the New Testament. It's about to be uh, the most wonderful time of the year, Christmas season. You should absolutely begin to listen to Christmas music on November the 1st. It will fill your soul and get you prepared for the season. And uh, as I thought about that, I thought about, uh, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And you know the Christmas story. And there was a man who wasn't real happy about this baby that was getting all the attention. Right? And so he says, well, everybody under two. We're going to kill all the children that are under two, which is atrocious. But what was that about? It was about recognition. Right? It was that Jesus was getting more recognition and acknowledgement. And so we desire, we all desire this affirmation. And we specifically desire it from those who are around us, especially those whom we deem important. We want our spouses and our friends to acknowledge us, to, uh, to see and recognize the things that are taking place in our life. And so the struggle for us as humans begins when we don't feel known, when we become threatened by the accomplishments of those around us. So what happens is we then seek to affirm ourselves. Well, what does the world tell us? You have to look out for number one. Right? You've got, to, you've got to recognize yourself. You've got to step on people in the corporate ladder to get to where you want to be because no one else is looking out for you. So you have to look out for yourself. You see, a lot of people have a very hard time when other people get credit. A lot of people struggle with that, that when someone else is recognized, it's hard for them. Because they feel like they deserve the credit, and they feel like they were the ones that should have been recognized. And so there's this ongoing struggle that happens within us. And so we're going to start with a question tonight, and the question is this. When good things happen in your life, does God get the glory? When good things happen in your life, does God get the glory? See, the Bible teaches us that all good things come from God. And so often in our lives, every one of us could, uh, could testify to the fact that there's some good things happening in your life. Now, we unfortunately tend to fixate on the negative. And it's easy for us to fixate on the negative because it's all around us. But you see, there's a lot of good things that are happening in your life right now. For instance, right now in this room, you're sitting here comfortably and you're not being attacked for your faith. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's not to be said in other places in the world today. Now, amongst those things, you uh, probably have had enough food to eat today. You've eaten at least once, right? And uh, there's other places that can't say that. So I know these seem fundamental, uh, but they are good things. And so if we, we could continue to traverse on into your life to get more and more specific to where you realize that, you know what, things are pretty good. So the question is, does God get the glory for those things in your life? When you get the raise, when, uh, when you get a material possession, whatever that may be, when, when favor is shown in your life, how do you acknowledge? How do you respond? What does your heart say about that? And what do the people around you see in that moment? Does God get the glory? You see, I think a lot of times in our life, what this does is it reveals what's inside of us as to what we really do believe. Do we believe that all good things come from God? If so, we would acknowledge all good things 
to God, right? Do we really believe that that is in fact true? And it also reveals about what we really desire, right? Because when we say, God, you get the glory for the good things that happen in my life, if we don't acknowledge that, if we don't give God the glory for that, and, and I hesitate to say it this way, but if we don't give God the credit for that, what that's saying about ourselves is that we want the credit, that I want to be the one that's acknowledged for the good things in my life, when in reality, you had nothing to do with it. Look, the fact that I'm an American had nothing to do with Matt, and it didn't have anything to do with you either. It's by the mercy and grace and for whatever revelation of God that he chose to plant me in the state of Mississippi. I don't know why he did it, but let me tell you, I'm very grateful that he did. It could have been a lot different. And we could all testify to that fact. But what happens in our heart is that our flesh says, no, you've got to get the credit for that. You've got to get the acknowledgement. You've got to be recognized. And so what happens is, is with social media is a monster with this, is that we say, hey, I just took a vacation, and everybody may not know about that, so let me show you all the amazingness about this vacation that I just took. Yes, I have enough money to take a vacation and not work. Look at all these wonderful pictures. I had a $35 steak, right? We just, we gloat and gloat and gloat about all these things, and we say, hey, I ate this and I did this, because we want credit. That's where that comes from is we want acknowledgement, and it is a monster inside of us. You see, the Lord's Prayer says this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We, we teach our kids to rehearse this in sports, and, and so, you know, they get in a circle and they say it, and oftentimes it's mechanical. But do, do we really mean that? Do we really mean thy will be done? Or is it contingent on what we agree with? Or is it contingent if we get the credit somewhere along the way for participation? Is it okay if no one knew? Thy will be done. You see, that's what God's desire is. That's why it's called the model prayer. It's because God's desire for us is that we would get to the point, just as Jesus so greatly exemplified, that we would remove ourselves from the equation and say, God, I don't understand this, or God, this is hard for me, or God, I know this is going to be painful, but my greater desire is that you would be glorified. Not that I would take the credit, not that I would be acknowledged for it, but that I would simply be counted among those who got to do something with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? Is that really our desire? Thy will be done. You see, character is truly revealed when you don't get your way. Man, is that not true? Who we really are, what we greatest, the greatest desire inside of our hearts is revealed in adversity. When I don't get what I want, when you don't say the things that I think you should say, when you don't acknowledge me for what I desire recognition for, and how I respond to that, that's who I really am. That's who you really are. It's a character issue. So as we're, we're talking about these traits and we're saying, God, we know that through the Spirit of God that we're not capable of manufacturing, and we'll get to this in a minute, but we're not capable of manufacturing these, uh, these uh, abilities or, or uh, character traits, but we know that through the instilling of the Spirit of God inside of me that I'm capable of manifesting those things only when I depend upon the Spirit of God to be the leader. 
And when the Spirit of God is the leader, God gets the glory. And so in Mark chapter 10, and it should be on your handout, we're going to look at uh, a couple of sets of Scripture, and we're going to piece this out and look at what does it look like for recognition, and how does our heart respond to that, and what is God's desire in that situation. In Mark chapter 10, and in verse 17, it says, As he was setting out on his journey, now this is Jesus, a man, this is a very familiar passage, by the way, a man ran up and knelt before him, and he asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You've heard this before. This is a rich young ruler, okay? So this guy comes up to Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus as good, and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so Jesus is, is going right to the heart of the matter. Because the heart of the matter, and we're about to get to it, is this. Is that inherently every one of us thinks that we're good. And inherently every one of us desires to be good. And inherently good leads to recognition. And so he says, Jesus, why you're good. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Because Jesus knows what his heart is. And so he says, you know the commandments. And so he tells him, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. What are all of these? Do you notice the theme here? They are all interaction with your fellow brother. They're all interaction with your fellow brother. And so what he wants is recognition for the goodness, if, if I can use that, of what he has done. And so he says to Jesus, all of these relational, these horizontal issues that Jesus is talking about, the, the rich young ruler says, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. In other words, I'm good. I've done this. I should be recognized for this, right? I've done it. And so Jesus says in verse 21, Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, basically, that was the absolute worst thing in the rich young ruler's ears that he could have heard, right? Anything else may have sufficed. That was the absolute worst thing that he could have said. And yet, it was the most important thing that he could absolutely hear. Right? That G Look, here's the deal. When you and I have an encounter with Jesus, what, we, what our flesh says is that we want Jesus to dance on the outside. But what our heart says is I need you to get all the way to the very middle of all the dirtiness in my life because I desperately need rescue right now. Right? What, our, what our, our flesh says is, Jesus, you can dance on the periphery, right? You can talk about all the things that actually are not convicting. But I need Hebrews 4.12. I need you to get all the way to the very middle. And that's what Jesus did here is he went all the way to the very core of what was happening in this situation. And the Bible says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here is someone who had influence. Here is someone who was wealthy. Here was someone who was youthful. He was young. He was attractive. This was a guy that everybody wanted to be. He had everything together. And so in his life, 
Everybody looked up to him. Everybody acknowledged him. Everybody recognized him for fame and success and wealth and all of those things that come with that. He had been recognized many, many, many times in his life because he's known as the rich young ruler. All right? For 2,000 years now, that's been his name. So clearly, there were things in his life that he was accustomed to receiving recognition for. So much so that in his life, he only did what he wanted to do. How do I know that? Because he came to Jesus on his own terms. The Bible says as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. It doesn't say that Jesus went to him. It says that he came to Jesus. You see, he came to Jesus when he wanted to, on his terms, how he wanted to do it, at the place he wanted to do it. He had a plan. When Jesus comes by, here's what I'm going to say. And so he waited, and he strategized, and he had this this strategy in place. And if he was rich, he probably had somebody looking out for him. And he said, when you see Jesus, let me know. And the guy ran back and said, hey, I see Jesus. Him and his pals are about to come by this way. It's time for you to come out. And so he comes up to Jesus on his own terms. It's someone that we see that wanted to add Jesus to what he was doing in life. He wanted to add Jesus. Jesus didn't become everything to him. He had no intention of Jesus becoming everything to him. All he wanted to do was to add Jesus to whatever else he was, had going on in life. You know why he did that? He did that because everything else in life he had figured out. He had figured out how to make money. He had figured out how to, uh, to be respected. He had figured out how to maintain his youthfulness. He probably went to the gym a lot. Right, here's a guy that was recognized for a lot of things, and he had figured out how to be good at life. And as long as you think you're good at life, you're never going to be good at following Jesus. You see, Jesus is looking for people who are fed up with this life and know that there's something more than what we see. And so here's this guy that wanted to just add Jesus. He was good at life. He was was desiring good. I think it's fascinating that he started out with that very word. He says, good teacher. He, he wanted good. You see, good is something that we all desire, right? How did you sleep last night? Good. How was dinner? It was good. How was the movie? It was good. That signifies things in our life, right? We want good. We all desire it. You see, some people are driven to do good, and others are driven to be seen as good. Whatever the motivation is, good is the objective. It is to be be acknowledged for doing good things. And so some people like Martha, as Pastor Tony preached a couple weeks ago, they're they're workers. They're do, 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 because they want to be seen as someone who does good. And so they work, and they they do, they, they do things for acknowledgement. So here's this man who stands before Jesus. He, he saw something that was good. Or might I say he saw someone who was good, and he wanted it. You see, a whole nother, another part of this, which we're not going to talk to, is that when you have an encounter with Jesus, it is the only thing that exists in your life. Right? All these possessions, Jesus was uh, saying, look, those things will go away when Jesus becomes number one. He saw someone good, and he wanted it. You see, even in all of his self-sufficiency, he knew 
he wasn't good. You see, for you and I to be saved, for anyone to be saved, there has to be an, an acknowledgement of not being good. There has to be an acknowledgement of sin. It's called a crisis of faith. So there has to be a point in your life where you admit that you are a sinner and that it is your sin, it is my sin that separated me from God. And the only way that there's ever going to be a bridge in that separation is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, he was very self-sufficient, but he knew there was one thing that was missing in his life. He wasn't good. It was the one thing that he had never been recognized for. So as I thought about that, I thought of a question for us. Well, what are you most recognized for? That's a good question, isn't it? What are you recognized for? Here's this guy who comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, he's seeking out acknowledgement for being good. He wants that. He, he, there's this desire for righteousness in his heart that he, he hadn't quite figured out that's what that is, but it's this desire for righteousness that all of us have, this yearning to return to the Garden of Eden, if you will. And so he says, Jesus, what about this good thing? I want to be recognized. You see, all of his life, he had depended upon himself to get where he was. Clearly, the, quote, rich young ruler was very self-sufficient. And so he says, good teacher, the word do, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The word for do means to manufacture. His self-sufficiency caused him to believe that he could manufacture the action required to have eternal life. Is that not fascinating? What must I do to inherit? What must I manufacture in my life? What must I create inside of my bubble that people will see me for so that I can have this thing you call eternal life, son of God? Right? What must I do? His self-sufficiency had gotten him to this point, but self-sufficiency can only take you so far. So the question that I ask myself is this, and you've heard the story a thousand times. Why did he walk away empty-handed? To which we would say, well, he didn't surrender everything. If any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Right? Isn't that what the Bible says, Matthew 4, 19? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In order for us to do that, what do we have to do? We have to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10, 9. That's what the Bible says. And so we would say, why? Why did he walk away empty-handed? We would say he didn't surrender. He didn't surrender. Well, might I suggest to you tonight that, of course, that is, it's certainly true, but is it possible that he walked away empty-handed because there's something that money can't buy? Is it possible that he walked away empty-handed because there's something that works can't earn? 
Is it possible tonight that, there, that this guy walked away from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, without eternal life because there is something spiritual that flesh cannot obtain? Is it possible that he was seeking something in the wrong way? You see, here's the deal. Every one of us want credit, but nobody wants the blame. Everybody wants credit. He's, he wants his pals to say, look, rich young ruler, great job in approaching Jesus today. You were so brave in talking to Rabbi the teacher, right? He wants acknowledgement. Hey, you got eternal life? Fantastic. That's going to look great in your, uh, co- your colossal uh, accomplishments that you've gotten in your life. Look, he wants the acknowledgement. He's asking that for something that money can't buy. He's asking for something that works can't earn and spiritual things that the flesh cannot obtain. The one thing, listen, the one thing he couldn't obtain was forgiveness. It was forgiveness. That's what he wanted. Why did he walk away empty-handed? Because he thought he could buy it. He thought he could buy it in his self-sufficiency. The most amazing thing about forgiveness as we talk about credit and blame is that forgiveness takes the blame of sin away. I don't know if you heard me there. Forgiveness takes away the blame of sin. That when you stand before God, that your record of sinfulness is removed. You are no longer blamed for that because of what Jesus did. And so what forgiveness does is it sets you free from the condemnation that comes with sin. And he thought, well, I can buy that. I can earn that. What must I do? So he walked away empty-handed. So I thought about this more. And so the question is this, why did he walk away empty-handed? Because he thought he could buy forgiveness. But notice this, listen, he still walked away. He still walked away. Think about this. We think of this story and we thought, oh man, he walked away and he, he didn't get salvation. Listen, he didn't walk away saying, I'm never gonna have salvation. He didn't walk away saying, I blew it. He didn't walk away saying that was my one shot in front of the Son of God. No, he walked away because he thought there was another way. Listen to me. If he believed that there was any other way for him to have eternal life, he walked away for it. If he believed that Jesus was the only way, he would have never left his knee. The Bible says what? That he ran to Jesus and he knelt. I'm telling you, he didn't leave because he failed. He left because he thought there was another way. He was convinced that he could find another way. He could figure it out. He could eventually earn it. But he thought he could do it himself. So as we think about this tonight, we say, well, you know, Pastor Matt, that may be true, but obviously he wasn't a believer, which is true. You say, self-sufficiency, that's not something I struggle with because I depend upon Jesus, which I hope is true. So we fast forward a few more verses to Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, the Bible says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
came up to him and they said to him, now John is uh, John the disciple, teacher, we want for you, or rather we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a great request, and it's kind of like this genie Jesus thing that they got going on, and, you know, we, we're going to grant three wishes, and we've got some great ideas, and so they come up, and we want you to do whatever we ask. This is such a trick question, right? You're like, your kids ever done that to you? I need you to say yes. Well, I need to know the question first, right? I need you to say yes. This just reminds me of that. And so he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, here's Jesus entertaining them, right? I mean, clearly he's the Son of God. So it's, it's almost like, okay, guys, hey, do you see the patience here? See, like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to say, no, you can't, and here's why I already know what you're thinking, right? I mean, this is an important moment. We'll get to it in a minute. But look, they're on their way to Jerusalem. You know what's waiting in Jerusalem, right? There, there's three crosses, and one of them has his name on it. He knows that. He, he, he is walking to crucifixion, and yet in this moment, he says, what, what would you like for me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Self-sufficiency is what the rich young ruler struggled with. Jesus, in your glory... When you get credit for overtaking Rome, which is what they all expected, when you set up your physical uh, dominion here on earth, when you are the boss of everybody and everyone submits to you physically, not spiritually, because we don't understand that, physically when you establish your kingdom, we would like some credit in your kingdom, God. So Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? In other words, are you willing for there to be five crosses? That's what he's saying. Are you good with six hours on a Friday on a cross? Are you, are you good with that, James and John? So, so here's... Something that they don't understand. And in the most loving, compassionate Jesus way, he says, I'm just not sure if you're willing to drink the cup, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And one of the most ignorant comments made to Jesus, they said, we are able. Now, I feel like they look back on that moment. I mean, you think of all the things that John wrote. I think he looked back on that moment. And he thought, shouldn't have said that one. Probably should have kept that to myself. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism, uh, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So the rich young ruler, in his uh, quest for credit that he felt he could obtain through self-sufficiency, walked away empty-handed. 
So now we have James and John, followers of Jesus. They've been invited to follow Jesus. Jesus personally invited James and John. And he says, hey, follow me. I'm going to make you guys fishers of men. The sons of Zebedee were present when Jesus performed the miracle with Peter in the fish uh, when he was out fishing. They've seen a lot of things. All right, so now this is ending. This is nearing the end of Jesus' life, right? So they've been with him for three, three and a half years. They've seen a lot of amazing things. And they say, Jesus, all the things that you've done awesome. we like a little credit for some of it. Can we do that? Can we arrange this whole right and left thing? And, and, and some of the other gospels even acknowledge the fact that their mom was involved in this, that she's trying to usher them up to the front of the line. And so now we find ourselves in the inner circle of Jesus. And at the request of Jesus, we see something very similar to the rich young ruler. You see, it's not self-sufficiency that they're struggling with. You see, they had become utterly dependent upon Jesus. Jesus will give up everything to follow you. It's believed that Peter maybe was the only one that was married, and so the rest of these guys were, they were solo. And so follow you, I can do that. I'm not leaving, uh, you know, I don't have family that's holding me back, and so I'm going to leave my trade, I'm going to leave my boat, I'm going to leave my net, I'm going to leave my family. You know, Jesus said that, you know, him who's not willing to leave his family, father, mother, and brother is not fit to follow me. me. And so they said, Jesus, we'll do that. We'll follow you. And so here's these guys who've given up everything, and they are utterly dependent upon Jesus, the carpenter. Right, The carpenter that for 30 years, that was his life, that was his trade, that's what he had learned. But now he's a fisher of men. And fisher of men during that time didn't have a high salary. And there's 12, 15 people following you around. you got to find food, right? That's why oftentimes Jesus said, hey, you got a basket of food, uh, multiply, now we have 12, right? Because they didn't have a lot of money running around. And so here's these guys that had become utterly dependent upon Jesus, which, by the way, is the only qualification for salvation. And now they're struggling with the enemy of self-confidence. They've seen all this stuff happen. They've been sent out in, I think it's Luke 10, to go out and represent the kingdom, to go out and cast out demons, to go out and be representative of the most famous preacher in the world. We're getting to the end of his life. We, we probably should ask for a little credit here. We need a little step up and pay. And so here's what Jesus said. You don't know what you're asking, verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, to which they said the dumbest thing ever said, we are able they believed that they were able to handle everything, right? It wasn't maybe or probably or hopefully, which I would have said hopefully if I was in that situation and, you know, was saying what they were saying. I would have said, with your help, I can do anything, right? That's where Philippians 4.13 ought to be. Yes, with your help. But they said, no, we can do it. Yes, emphatically, we are able. We can do it, Jesus. What you got? You see, they were able to handle everything within their realm of understanding. And what happens in our life in self-confidence is we get confident with the very circle that we exist within. 
And what God was calling the disciples to do, what God is calling us to do, is to abandon our self-sufficiency and to abandon our self-confidence and to be utterly dependent upon Him and say, you know what, I am not able to do what you're calling me to do, but I fully believe in the fact that you will make me able to do that. Right? What, Mary, what did Mary say? With God, all things are possible. How is a lowly teenage Mary going to have a child, right? I mean, the story is amazing. But with God, she says, well, you know what? I can do it. And so what happens in our own life is our understanding is very small. And I think a lot of times we do it to ourselves intentionally, that we say, I understand this about God, and I'm not going to explore any other faith options in my life. I'm going to stay in this circle because I understand this circle. And if I step outside the bounds of what my faith understands, I'm not sure how I will respond. And so what James and John had done is they had put Jesus in a box. And they said, this is how God works, and this is how God acts, and this is the only way God acts. And we completely understand that, which wasn't true. And so, yes, we can handle everything that you throw at us. You see, the problem was for them, and the problem for me and you, is that our understanding is very limited. We just don't know it. Right? We just don't know it. I mean, have you looked at the galaxies? We are a spot on the map when it comes to the galaxy that we live in. It's incredible. But we think, you know, we, we talk about aliens. My kids have asked me before, do you believe in aliens? Right? Do we believe in aliens? And what, mo- what do we say? Well, no. There's no such thing as aliens. Who would believe such a thing? Why do we say that? Because we don't understand it. Because there's this ginormous galaxy out there, and I think it's pretty arrogant to believe that we're the only thing that exists. He made everything. We're a speck in the dirt, but we're the only things that exist. Now, I mean, look, I could be wrong. I don't know. I just think God's big enough to be able to do that. Right? So you can believe what you want to believe. Am I saying I believe in aliens? Maybe. I don't know. I like men in black, so. I mean, heck, one of you might be an alien. I don't know. But here's the deal. If God wanted to do it, he could. It's fascinating to think about. I mean, I'm just saying this. My God's not in a box. He can do whatever he wants. He can walk on water. He can cause dead people to rise up. I mean, he can take dirty, rotten sinners and make them saints in the kingdom of God. So, I mean, you just do your own math with that. So they didn't know. They didn't understand. That was not in my notes, by the way. I did not write aliens there. They were sure in their self-confidence that their their request would be granted. They knew it. Jesus, we've been with you for three years, man. Look, you remember that time I brought you some extra grapes? Can you hook me up? Can I get a little credit here? So they were sure in their self-confidence that Jesus would say, yes, the self-sufficiency of the rich young ruler and the self-confidence of James and John were both symptoms of the same disease, pride. Now, P is not for pride. That is not what we're on tonight. It was pride, self-sufficiency in that I got this. I've done all these other things, and Jesus, I'll let you know if I need you. That's how a lot of people's prayer life is. I'm not going to pray to God. It's not that you're mad at God. You just don't think you need him. 
And so you, you say, well, I'm going to go about life, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to do my thing, and I'm going to perform my job or whatever it is that you do, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live and operate my life and maybe even read my Bible. But when things get hard and I don't know the answer, then I'm going to call you Jesus. That's how a lot of people's prayer life is. You see, self-sufficiency, self-confidence, I can do this. I can do this. Well, that's what happened in the Old Testament, isn't it? That they began to rely on the thing that God said in the past and not what God was saying in the present. And oftentimes what God said in the past was not the same thing God was saying in the present. And that's why they lost a lot of those battles. Because they were confident in themselves and not confident in God. You see, the enemy inside every one of us is pride. We all have it. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. That he looked around and he says, look at me, I look pretty awesome. And I feel like I should be getting some credit up here. So who's with me? Who wants to worship me? And the Revelation says that about a third of the angels fell. And they began to go run with Lucifer. Because why? Because of pride. So the question, the question is not if we have pride. The question is where in our hearts do we have pride, and how is it expressed in our life? Listen, it, we're, you have pride. Don't, don't play the holier-than-thou card. You have it. Every one of us have it. So it's not if we have it. It's, it's where in my heart does it manifest itself the most? Where do I struggle the most with pride? Where do I have the most difficulty with uh, submitting or controlling pride? You see, this is what the Bible says. And there's many, many, many places. This is not on your handout. So write down Proverbs 8.13. Now there's a lot of places, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. There's a lot of places that I could have used a reference, but this is just one of many, okay? Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance, listen to this, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Those are strong words. God said, I hate pride. Now, he says it in many other places. So, every one of us has pride inside of us because sin nature is what? Did God really say? You can be a God if you eat from the fruit, fruit of the tree of life. What is that? It is pride. It is that I want to be like God. And so if I go eat that fruit, then guess what? I'm going to be like God. That's what Lucifer did. So God hates nothing more than he hates pride. So the question is, well, why is he so against pride? I mean, don't you think there's a lot of other things he could really hate? Like murder, for instance. Wouldn't it make sense that God just absolutely abhorred murder? It would, and he doesn't like murder. But he hates pride. Why does he hate pride? Well, he hates pride because in pride we aspire to the position and status of God in our own lives, and we fail to depend upon him. We just like Adam and Eve, in pride, are trying to be the same as God. You see, we think, listen, everybody does this. This is why I backdoored you on this. Every, if I'd have said tonight we're talking about pride, you'd have checked out. But it's not, it, that's not the case because we're all self-sufficient. 
There are so many areas of our own lives that we say, Jesus, I got this. I can do this. Or in self-confidence, we say, I know what to do here. And so we want to say, no, I can do this. And it is, it is pride. It is pride. You see, pride only has one goal, and that is self-glorification. Is that I get credit, that I get recognized. We all acknowledge at the beginning that every one of us has that desire inside of us that I would be recognized, that somebody would see me and know me and affirm me for whatever it is I'm seeking affirmation for. But it's all wrapped around one thing, and it is self-glorification. Now, the thing that many say that God is captivated with is glory. That God preserves His glory. That God is about His glory. You see in many places in almost every angelic encounter, it is glory to God in the highest, right? Uh, Isaiah says, uh, holy, holy, holy. He talks about God being glorified, that he would be magnified. You see, the reason that God hates pride is because what pride is, it is contending with the supremacy of God. It is contending with the supremacy of God. What does that mean? It means that God is not number one in your life when you allow pride to be the leader. It means that you are placing yourself on the throne of your life. It is contending with supremacy. It is saying, you're the king of kings, Jesus. And then pride says, no, I'm the king of my life. And Jesus says, no, I sacrificed so that you would have eternal life. And self says, no, I want to be the head of my life. That's what supremacy is. It's who is sitting on the throne of your heart. Self-sufficiency, self-confidence, they both produce self-glorification. You see, there's no sin that works more cunningly and more hiddenly than pride. You see, pride comes in and like a snake, it'll bite you, and then you look back and you're like, oh, wait a minute, man, that was prideful. That was pride that got me there. It knows how to penetrate into everything, even in our service for God. Even in our service for God. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you want to serve in this capacity? If no one found out that you served in the nursery, would you be okay with that? If no one found out that you were the one that donated $1,000 towards youth camp, would you be okay with that? You see, that's how we measure pride in our own heart and in our life, is are we willing to do something so that God would be glorified and we would not get the credit for it? Even in our service to God, pride shows up. So we have to be careful. We have to guard against that. We have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why does that make me mad? Why does that bother me that they're not doing what I think they ought to do? Why does it upset me that the church has made a decision that I was not for? Remember, character is who you are when you don't get your way, right? That's the manifestation of character. See, there's no sin that's more cunning. The Bible says this in James chapter 4 and verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. Did you hear that? God opposes. God is actively against 
pride. Actively against it. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't withstand God actively being against me. God actively opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He actively opposes the proud, but he leans in, the Bible says, to the humble. He leans in. You see, God works in the situations in which he gets the most glory. If it can be explained by man, then man probably did it. You see, Pastor Tony preached about the but God moment, right? The but God moment to where things happen in our life, right? And we say, you know, I was on a collision course with catastrophe, but God, right? We all have testimonies like that, of that we were going one way, but God, and then boom, we're going towards God, that God drew us in. The but God moment, that, that God leaned in to us, and, he, and through humility, he drew us. How do you get saved? It's through confessing your sin, by raising your hand and saying, I'm a sinner, right? That's how you get saved, that you have to submit yourself to the reality that you failed, right? Because when you were born, the standard was perfection. And the doctor brought you out and said, good luck. If you make it, you'll be the first one, right? And you didn't do it. You failed. You couldn't be perfect. Well, you know, the the odds were stacked against you. You know, you had this sin nature, and, and this flesh was raging inside of you to do all the wrong things. And so you really didn't have a chance, but you failed, And so for you to stand before God and to acknowledge that is what? It is submitting to that reality. It's the only way you can be saved. You come to Jesus like the rich young ruler and say, my life is pretty amazing and I got most things figured out. The only thing I haven't nailed is eternal life. Can I have some of that? You're going to walk away empty-handed. That's just how that works. And so God leans in To the humble. You see, uh, John Stott said this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So in case you haven't figured it out, H is for humility. So what are we talking about tonight? Humility. Humility. You see, humility is the opposite of pride. You see, the character trait of God is clearly not pride. The character trait of God that we're talking about was, first was integrity, second was honesty. Tonight is humility. Again, if I would have said, tonight we're talking about humility, you would have checked out, right? So let's talk about, just for a few minutes, what humility is not. And let's talk about what humility is. And I have a great example for you. So humility is not humility is not seeing yourself as less than you are. Humility is not self-deprecation. Humility is not saying, I am a total loser. I have no abilities. I can't do anything right. If it weren't for God, I'd be dead, right? It's, that's not, it's not the woe is me. 
Look, seeing yourself as less than who you are is not humility. You are a child of God. You were created in the image of God. And as Pastor Tony talked about with workmanship here recently, you are God's poema. You're his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Humility is not seeing yourself for less than you are. It's not going around saying, God is good, but I am not. That is not humility. Humility is not seeing yourself as less than you are. Number two, humility is not failing to appreciate or to acknowledge when others see good in you. Mark, I see, you know, God did something great in your life. And you're like, oh, no, no, man, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. No, God did something good in your life. Give God the credit for it. Glory to God. Man, I'm grateful to have been a part of that. Right? It is not failing to acknowledge the good things that God did in your life. So when you say, oh, you know, being humble is not, oh, no, 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 I don't want credit. No, that's not me. No, it's, yeah, God did that. And I was just grateful to be a part of it. Right? Look, there's times, I know I can say this, I may speak for Pastor Tony on this as well. There's times where I get a chance, I'll just speak for myself, that I get a chance to preach and I stand up and I, and I preach and I'm, I'm ready to go and I've, you know, I've prayed and I've put in the work and I get up here and I walk away and I'm like, man, that was a fail. And then, you know, I'll hear how God's using it in somebody's life and I'm like, how is that possible? This is the worst message I've ever preached. Right? And then there's other times, I'm just being honest with you, there's other times I'm like, man, I can't wait. This is going to be the best illustration ever. And I'll you know, get up here and I'll preach and I'm like, you know, like, and then it's like, that was the worst message you've ever preached. Right? And so I tell people, look, please don't tell me, and I, I mean, I say this for Pastor Tony as well, please don't say that was a crushing message, that was amazing. Here's how you acknowledge that. Man, God really used what you said. God really challenged me in this area because of the Scripture that you used today. There were some things that you brought out that really caused me to see God in a different way. Look, the worst thing you can do is try to give a preacher credit. That's why we have televangelists, right? Somebody gave them too much credit, and they did their hair fancy, and they got a TV show, right? So it's not failing to acknowledge that, right? I need to know when God is using me. It encourages me. Right? You need to know when God is using you. So that's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not, again, making yourself lower. Oh, no, you're really, you're a better Christian than I am. That's silly. So what is humility then? Humility is thinking of yourself less. It is thinking of yourself less. So many people live in a world filled with eyes, and that's the letter I. Everything in their life revolves around them. Every decision, every thought, everything that they do is, will this benefit me? Is this going to be good for me? And when you lead with that, you've already failed. That's not humility. That's not who Jesus was. You see, humility is thinking of yourself less. Now, I told you I was going to give you the perfect example. Okay? Mark chapter 10. We stayed in Mark the whole time, so if you want to go home and read Mark 10, you'll probably see it differently. 
Mark chapter 10. They were on the road, verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now remember, this is right before the James and John conversation. Remember, James and John was verse 35, okay? This is right before. So they're going to Jerusalem. They were amazed. There were some that were amazed. Jesus is going to be crucified. Those who, were follow, uh, those who follow were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Which this should even more astonish you that Jesus tells James and John this, and then they wanted to sit beside him. It says, verse 33, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Just Jesus talking. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, these are big words, okay? For three years they've walked with Jesus, and he says to them, I am about to die. This is the clearest that he's been on any point about him dying. You know, there's been times where he says, you know, they're going to destroy the temple in three days. I'm going to raise it up again. They didn't really know what that meant. Right here he says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. He says, who? And then he says, what? They will condemn him to death. This is the clearest he's been. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and then he says it, and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise again. Now imagine how they receive this. What, wait, wait a minute. What? Now we, you see James and John's response was, well, when you die, can we sit on each side? Self-confidence? So here's Jesus going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And this is what I want you to see. He knows where he's going. He knows why he's going there. And he knows what's about to happen. Because he's the son of God. He knows it, okay? And what is he doing? He is, what, what does it say? This is, this is unbelievable. Look in verse 32 again. They were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus was intentionally leading them to his death. Now, I have chill bumps thinking about this right now. He knew what was about to happen, and he led them to it. He led them to his death. He didn't say, you guys go ahead. He didn't try to get an army around to be in front. He said, I am going to go first. I'm going to face death before you face death. I'm going to have victory over death because you need victory over death. In the most horrific of human experiences, Jesus is thinking of others. He is leading the disciples. He is teaching the disciples. He is patient with the morons, James and John. He is leading them to his crucifixion. Do you see this? You see, humility is possible for you and me. How is it that we can be humble in a world of James and John's? Well, it's possible when you look at others with the compassion that Jesus saw us with. How can we be humble when James and John are trying to get all the credit? We can see them with compassion because that's how Jesus saw James and John. Humility is possible when we look with 
compassion. Jesus is leading them to the cross. He's showing them what humility looks like. Remember what humility is? It is willfully submitting. Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm hiding out over here in Galilee, and if you think you can find me, then you can crucify me. Right? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk right up in there. I'm going right to the middle. Y'all looking for Jesus? That's me right here. I'm Jesus. That's what he did. He willfully submitted to God's will. Remember, thy will be done. He willfully submitted. You see, the only way that humility takes root in our hearts is if we're led to the cross. That we have to let Jesus lead the things that we do. You see, the Bible says, Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, I said it earlier, he must what? He must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. So you have to deny yourself. You have to submit yourself to what? To death to self and life in Jesus. You have to be led to the cross. It's because the battle for supremacy of our hearts is always lost apart from the cross. You will always be on the throne of your life apart from the cross. Always. You see, the lure of self-sufficiency and the lure of self-confidence will always be present apart from the cross. There is no self-sufficiency on the cross. There is no self-confidence on the cross. The thief who is sitting beside Jesus, he had no ability to do anything about changing his situation. And what did he do? He cried out, remember me in paradise. Truly, you are the Son of God. You see, the cross changes things. You see, when we sacrifice our desires, when we sacrifice our will on the cross, what we're doing is we're surrendering the way of life that we desire, and we're submitting to the will of God that God desires for us. You see, here's the deal. Here's the fight for you right here. here here's how it's going to be hard is the flesh is afraid of humility. The flesh is afraid of humility. Don't let them see you sweat. Don't let them see you cry. Strap up your bootstraps. Right? The flesh is terrified of the reality of humility. Why is the flesh afraid of humility. Your flesh doesn't want you to submit. Your flesh doesn't want you to put others first. Your flesh doesn't want to not get credit. Your flesh wants all the credit. Why is the flesh terrified of humility? Because 2,000 years ago, the flesh saw something it had never seen before and never seen again, and it radically changed the face of humanity. You see, this is what the flesh saw. And Philippians, write this down, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. And being found in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The flesh is mortified of humility because the last time the flesh saw humility, Jesus defeated it. 
The flesh knows that in humility you die to self. And the less that we're filled with ourselves, the more that God can and the more that God will work in us and through us to accomplish the things that He wants to accomplish. Is that not amazing? It is through the death of Jesus. It is the obedience by humbling himself to the most uh, atrocious, horrific, painful death that a human could even possibly conceive. And yet he submitted to that to show the flesh, you are not the boss of me. The more I see of God, the more I allow God to live in me and through me, the more I will submit to you and to others, the more I will be humble, the more I will put others before me. So I want to give you a couple of takeaways for humility tonight. Number one, humility begins when you see yourself correctly. That you are a sinner saved by grace. That it is not of works, lest you should boast, parentheses, pride, or, but that you are saved by grace. That humility, it begins when you see yourself as a child of God. I don't, you don't need anything from me. You don't need my affirmation. I don't need your affirmation. When I know what my identity is in Jesus Christ, that I'm a child of God, that I've been redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ, not of the works of myself, that I didn't earn it and I don't have to work to keep it because he securely planted salvation inside of me. And the Bible says that what he started, he will finish. I don't need anything from you to affirm that. And you don't need anything from me to affirm that. Humility says, I see myself as a child of God, and if this world goes to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, that changes nothing about who Jesus is. Turn on CNN, turn it off. Turn on Fox News, turn it off. I don't care what's on TV. It doesn't change anything. Humility begins when you see yourself as God sees you, and then you won't need anything from anybody else. Humility often requires taking the word if out of your vocabulary. I will do that if I get credit. I will serve if I'm acknowledged. I'll do it if I want to. I'll do it if I like it. Yes, Lord, if I'm comfortable with it, right? If. You take if out of the equation, and guess what? It changes things. Humility has no ifs. I'm going to serve other people even if I don't get credit. I'm going to love other people even if I'm not acknowledged. I'm going to do it even if nobody finds out. I'm going to do it because I have an audience of one. Humility says take if out of your vocabulary. Because humility is not just an attitude, it's an action. Look, it's not going around saying, I got to think of myself less. I got to think of myself less. I got to think of myself less. Well, now guess what you're doing? You're thinking of yourself more because you're talking about thinking of yourself less. That's not humility. So it's not just this attitude. It is an action. So I looked up James 4.10, a popular verse. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We sing a song. Humble yourself on the side of the Lord and he will lift you up, right? We've sung that before. So, Humble. It's a verb. It's a verb. 
It's an action word. So it's not an attitude. You know, hey, how are things going? I'm working on becoming more humble. That is not true. No, it's not an attitude. And you're arrogant if you say that. Now, I read a story about a guy at work that was acknowledged for being uh, the most humble guy at work, and so they gave him an award, and so the next day at work he wore it, and they took it away because he wore it, right? That's not humility. So James says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humility is an action. Remember, Jesus was doing what? He was leading the disciples to Jerusalem. And last but not least, humility requires to serve others consistently. Humility is not a one and done. Humility is not, okay, well, I'm going to serve you today, check mark, for the rest of life, I serve someone. It is looking for opportunities. Listen, listen to this. Humility is consistently showing the flesh that the Spirit is in control. Every single day, you're going to fight that. Your flesh is going to raise up, and your flesh is going to be terrified, and your flesh is going to try to convince you that humility is not the best route. You have to, every single day, make a conscious decision that I'm going to put others before me. And that is where you put Jesus in the equation. How can you do that? Are people going to make you mad? Are you going to get upset? Are you going to desire recognition and credit? Yes, all of those things are true, which is why you have to submit to that. You have to surrender those desires and say, those are not from God. Those are of the flesh. And so I'm going to submit to what God has in store for me. So every single day, humility is an act of you submitting the flesh to the Spirit. Amen? I hope you have gained as much from this as I have. This has been an amazing part of my week in studying this. And uh, so I'm just grateful that we get the example that we have in Scripture. And so many times we see Scripture from one particular lens. And so I, I was encouraged tonight to see the rich young ruler from a different perspective. But I do, I want to encourage you. It's an action. And so Sunday is a great opportunity for you to Exercise your humility muscle and serve the community, right? Where there's not going to be, listen, if you show up, you've never been, there's not going to be big banners that say, Michael Memorial loves you, right? That's not the goal here. It's that Jesus loves you. And we want to be to the community what Jesus wants the community to know, that he loves them, that he has a plan for them, that there's hope found in Jesus. And so Sunday, that's what we want to be, is the hands and feet of Jesus. So it is an opportunity for us to serve others continually. Amen? I hope you'll join us Sunday. Let's pray. God, we, we are so thankful tonight for your example in Scripture. And God, I'll be honest with you. It, it...